Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Pooja Chandra Shekhar, a second year medical student at Harvard Medical School and the founder of the COVID 19 Health Literacy Project which aims to create and translate accessible COVID-19 information into different languages to help all patients know when and how to seek care. Pooja graduated from Harvard College with an AB in biomedical engineering and subsequently completed a Fulbright scholarship in India. Alongside clinical medicine, she is passionate about improving healthcare delivery and quality and hopes to leverage emerging technologies and policy levers to transform care for the underserved. She is additionally passionate about promoting education equity through increasing access to STEM education for low-income and minority students. Thank you so much, Pooja, for taking the time out of your weekend to chat with us today. It's so impressive to see what you've accomplished as an inspiring young leader in equity and innovation through Project CS Girls, your experience throughout Harvard and the Fulbright program, and now with the COVID. 19 Health Literacy Project. We'd love to hear your journey. Take us to the start and and share with us your personal mission. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much to all of you for having me. It's such a privilege to be on the podcast. So in terms of my personal story, so I grew up in Virginia, right outside of DC, and my parents are both engineers. So from an early age, my parents really taught me to look around me, identify problems and build solutions to them. So, you know, we'd spend one weekend learning about the pitfalls of fossil fuels and maybe the next building a solar powered car, often one that, you know, knocked around a lot of things around our house. But it was these early experiences that to me really instilled this mindset to not be a passive bystander, but to really see the issues that needed to be fixed and then actually do something about them. And growing up, my parents also took, you know, every opportunity possible to teach me about the importance of service. But I firmly believe that a commitment to service and equity really has to come from within. Um, it's not something that can often be explicitly taught. And for me, that came during the late middle school, early high school period. Just when I was old enough to start picking up on the dichotomy between the world that I grew up in in suburban Virginia and that of my extended family in India. And most of my, the vast majority of my extended family lives in India. And while I spent my summers, you know, working at a tech company, writing algorithms to build medical devices, um, I was raised to believe in the power of education to shape my future. But meanwhile, women in my family in India were often educated as a means of occupying them until marriage. Um, And this is something that, you know, is not solely applicable to just my family, applicable to many families in India, but seeing it really up front and seeing the dichotomy between where I grew up and the environment I grew up in and the environment that so many women in my family were exposed to was really striking for me. And in fact, my mom is the first woman in our family to pursue a career. And it was a startling reminder of, you know, the so-called birth lottery, how where you're born and to whom you're born can really shape your chances of success. Um, and it was this realization that shaped my personal commitment to social equity. It was the same commitment that you know motivated me to start Project CS Girls, which you mentioned. 
Um, and I started that organization eight years ago to tackle the stereotypes that tell girls that they don't belong in STEM or in specifically computer science. And through the organization, we've been able to reach, you know, over 15,000 girls in 12 countries to date and really give them this community of peers and mentors to help them achieve their dreams. And now as a medical student, I'm aspiring to a career in healthcare, the same commitment to social equity fuels my work. And when you look at the range of projects that I've been able to be involved in from my work and time at Harvard to my Fulbright and now my work in at Harvard Medical School, the underlying theme, the driver, if you will, is really the same. Um, and it's to achieve health equity for a vulnerable population. That's a very motivational and inspiring story, Pooja. Thanks for sharing that. Could you tell us more about your decision to pursue the Fulbright in India? What type of work were you doing and how do you see these experiences translating to your current work as a medical student and beyond? Absolutely. Um, so my Fulbright was actually directly motivated by the work that I did as a college student at Harvard. So, you know, I came into college you know, becoming increasingly interested in healthcare and medicine. And I was looking specifically for opportunities that interwove my budding interest in healthcare with my longstanding passion for social equity. Um, and I found this clinic called the Advocating Success for Kids or ASK clinic at Boston Children's Hospital. And to give you some context, the clinic serves children, mostly from low-income families in the greater Boston area. Uh, who have learning and developmental disabilities. So think autism, ADHD, et cetera. And the clinic focused on addressing not only these kids' medical needs, but also their social needs, which were often complex and multifaceted. And their team consisted of pediatricians, social workers, teachers, all of whom kind of came together um, with a patient school and social services to make sure that they're getting the support they needed to succeed, um, not only in terms of their clinical care and outcomes, but also in their educational outcomes and their social outcomes. It was an amazing experience. And I worked there as a patient advocate for three years. Um, it actually motivated me. Uh, it was a big part of the reason I chose to pursue a career in medicine. Um, and I eventually led the student program there as president. But while working there, there, I had this really pivotal experience, which was also the one that motivated my Fulbright and also really shaped, um, you know, how I see my current career moving. And it was this experience where I met this South Asian family who came in and their child was given a diagnosis of autism. So I was president of environment to the during that appointment. Um, and the family, you know, when they were given this diagnosis of autism, they had a really interesting and striking response. Um, so they retorted that, you know, autism doesn't exist in India. And despite our best efforts of trying to build that therapeutic alliance with them, working with the school their child attended, we weren't able to make much headway. And I saw how it affected their child's outcomes, both clinically and in his performance at school. And it was this experience that pushed me to think, what are the structural barriers that are you know, affecting kids' health and well-being, specifically around the stigma around autism and learning disabilities in the South Asian community? Um, and my Fulbright was focused on this very question. So what are the structural barriers to the health of autistic patients and how can 
the system in South Asian countries better tackle these barriers. And so I chose to do a Fulbright in India where I could actually study these, um, study this question in the South Asian context. And there I worked with Sangat, which was um, a mental health and child development NGO in Goa, India. Had a wonderful experience where I lived on the beach and worked on really fascinating question, uh, but it was also a really humbling experience. I work, was working with uh, rural schools in Goa, and during the experience, it really showed me how a whole cocktail of factors, right? So including limited resources, limited staff in schools, ineffective government policies, the stigma that I've been mentioning, the poorly connected medical system, how all of them really come together to hamper a student success. That's exactly what solidified my commitment to health equity right as I came into medical school and really pushed me to, you know, focus on projects and experiences that can help me understand these issues better. What are these structural issues better? And how can I actually begin to address them as I embark on my career? So um, year 2020, it's been an interesting one. Um, for sure. Um, it's been one of challenges and losses, but also one of hope and initiative. And I think COVID-19 Health Literacy Project was um, born out of 2020. And we were really pleased to hear about your leadership in you know, spearheading this project. Could you tell us about you know, what inspired you to start this initiative and how you went about starting it? For sure. So like with most work I've done, it really came from a community need. So at the start of the pandemic, um, in March, mid-March, as the pandemic began picking up steam here in Boston, where I'm based, I started speaking with a few local community-based organizations that I had had um, past connections to. And one of them was the Family Van. The Family Van is a mobile health clinic that serves uh, the greater Boston area, and their patient population has a sizable proportion that's immigrant, refugee, and minority populations. Um, and you, as you might expect, many of these patients are not native English speakers. And as I kind of you know, began speaking with the staff and leadership and trying to tease out what were the main issues that the family van was focusing on and uh, experiencing during this challenging time, there was one theme that kept coming up over and over again. And it was that these patients were not being given materials or information in their native language simply because they did not exist. Um, so the staff highlighted, you know, how difficult language barriers make it for these patients to know when and how to seek care, how to protect themselves and their loved ones. And the CDC at the time and most uh, state health departments were not releasing information in languages other than English and a few other major languages, uh, which really put these communities, which were already vulnerable for a whole host of other factors, at an even greater risk for infection and death. And we also know from a host of research that's been done on this topic, um, from past epidemics like H1N1 and the swine flu, that language barriers have a real tangible impact on patients' health and directly contribute to health disparities. So it was these factors that motivated me and inspired me to start the COVID-19 literacy project. Um, and our mission was to create and translate accessible, evidence-based COVID-19 information 
into different languages, of which we have around 40 right now, to help everybody, especially immigrants and non-English speakers, stay informed and healthy. Um, and we built the project through a collaboration with uh, Harvard Health Publishing. I, mean, I think um, the work you did and are doing is really important in helping you know, America, you know, the people get through this pandemic safely. Um, so thank you so much for doing this work. And I'm sure it hasn't been easy. You know, um, everyone can say, you know, we're going to do some work. We're going to help out um, in this pandemic. But actually putting in the time and the effort and, you know, planning out the logistics, it's definitely not an easy task. So I want to ask you a few questions on that. So um, you mentioned that you worked with um, Harvard um, on you know, this project. Were there any other partnerships that you forged and how did you go about um, forging them? Yeah, for sure. So I would say the partnerships we forged were among the most critical to the success of the project. Um, you know, it's one thing to be able to create the fact sheets and translate the information, but if you're not actually getting this information to the communities that need it, you're not actually having an impact. Um, so as an organization, our intent was to make our materials as accessible as possible. And that meant partnering with community organizations to disseminate our materials uh, to, to those who needed them. And we worked with organizations spanning the gamut from hospitals and health systems to cities and public health departments to advocacy groups and community-based organizations. And the reality is that COVID-19 is a thorny, multifaceted public health crisis. And the reason we worked with such a wide variety of organizations is because we really need all hands on deck to tackle this crisis. And if you think about it, language accessibility is critical to nearly every kind of effort to combat coronavirus. So our strategy was to distribute our materials to groups across the board, while also continuing to focus on the groups that serve, you know, the immigrant underserved minority populations uh, that we really hoped to reach and serve. Um, but as to, you know, your question about how did we partner with these organizations and how did we reach out and how did we really build those partnerships is really taking a very broad-based approach um, and reaching out and asking how can we make our materials useful to you and how can we make sure that we are uh, providing these materials to the patients you are serving. And lastly, that collaboration with Harvard Health Publishing was very critical to making sure that our materials, you know, were up-to-date and evidence-based, and also gave us a level of credibility uh, that I think was very important, um, especially in a, in a crisis like this where you're just getting so much information thrown at you from different sources and you don't really know which of them is, is credible and which aren't. So having that support was uh, really useful for us to build these partnerships uh, with the other organizations that I mentioned. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's amazing that you were able to partner with so many different organizations and get that information out. And um, what about your core team? Um, how did you go about building your core team? How many were in your team? Um, where did you go about finding those people? Yeah, for sure. So for us, it actually started with a very millennial approach, you might say. Um, it started with a call to action on Twitter, actually. So I put out a tweet in mid-March, uh, April, where I received over 300 responses 
from medical students around the world who were eager to help and contribute their time and energy to the cause. So essentially, I said, you know, here's um, the issue that I'm hoping to solve and the approach that I'm hoping to, to tackle it with. Who wants to help me do this? Yeah, and I got an immense amount of responses, far more than I had ever received before. It was by far my most popular tweet ever. <laughs> um, and ultimately, you know, I ended up operationalizing that into a more, uh, into a, into a more streamlined approach, uh, where I had a form for folks to fill out who were interested and, um, to also indicate, you know, what were their skills and experiences that they could bring to the project and also what languages did they speak and what languages were they comfortable translating into. So ultimately, I used all of that information to recruit around 175 medical students um, from around 30 medical institutions around the country. And I should also say, it wasn't just medical students, it was health professions, professional students in general. So we had you know, nursing students, PA students, et cetera, as well, um, but majority medical students. And together, they spoke over 40 languages. So um, that was really important for us because that dictated the number of languages that we could translate our materials to because our first line translation was done by uh, the members of our core team. And I think it's also important to highlight here that although this really was a grassroots student-led effort that I think is actually a perfect description, perfect example of the power of student advocacy in public health crises, Faculty support was also crucial. Uh, we actually had over 40 infectious disease and primary care physicians who were involved with vetting the materials and the translations and making sure that the materials we're providing to the general public um, are consistent with the highest cl clinical and quality standards. So that meant not only did our faculty members um, vet the actual information we were putting out and the accuracy and timeliness of it, but also they vetted the translations. So we had um, a physician who was fluent in a particular language. So they spoke that native language, um, actually read the translation as well. So not just the English um, fact sheet, but also the translated fact sheet and make sure that it was culturally appropriate um, and relevant to the to, to that patient population. Gotcha. And um, how, sorry, we have a lot of questions on this project, how you were able to get it off the ground. Um, we're also curious to hear about how you were able to measure impact um, mm -hmm. for this project. Yeah, great question. So I will say this is probably a little bit of a different answer I would give than for really any other project I've worked on. And that's for a few reasons. The primary of which is just the timeline of the project um, and also the scope of impact. Um, so, you know, if you were thinking about who are the population, what is the population we're trying to reach? The answer is really everybody. Um, because, you know, we're, we're not just producing information in non-English languages, we're also producing information in English. Um, so it's really everybody and anybody affected by coronavirus, which is everybody. It was difficult to measure impact, um, you know, for a specific population. So the way we decided to measure impact was, you know, one, how many page views and downloads um, is our website getting? So that was a rough estimate of the uptake of our fact sheets by patients and communities. So we had over 250, we've had over 250,000 
page views and downloads since April, which is when our website went live, which we were really excited by. So, and then the other more qualitative measure of our impact was to really think about what was the general public saying about our materials? What were the community organizations and our partners saying about the materials? And really integrate all of that into a measure of where we actually reaching who we wanted to serve, um, how are we creating that impact, and what was the ultimate effect on the patients that we were hoping to reach? It's a great answer. I think, you know, in any entrepreneurial pursuit, we're always keen on understanding what kind of impact are we having on, on a greater population. And I think this project is unique in that you're trying to get as much reliable information to as many people as possible. And I think that's a you know unique challenge that you did and you undertook very successfully. Um, zooming out a bit, though, in retrospect, you know, you were a leader, you were, um, you know, being able to assemble such a wide community of various organizations as a student can be a very hard thing to do. Um, and, you know, being able to communicate with KOLs or key opinion leaders, how do you approach leadership at a high level? What do you think it takes to be an effective leader and, you know, one that you aspire to be uh, in the future? Yeah, great question. Um, I think for me, leadership centers around a few things. The first is the mission. And I think this is something that I've employed across every entrepreneurial leadership experience that I've been lucky to be a part of. And that's really making sure the mission is one, something that speaks to me. So I have never been involved with a project and never intend to be involved with a project that where the mission is not something that I personally identify with. Um, so I think that really pushes me as an individual to um, do more and speak more and, and act in a specific way where I'm driven to do, to have a specific amount of impact. And I think picking, uh, you know, employing a leadership style that pushes, that puts that mission first and front and center is critical for me. Um, the other, I think, is building a team where you can really realize that mission and who also supports you in um, the journey to recognizing and realizing that mission. I totally agree. And I think that second part is even more important in the context of your project in that, as you alluded to before, having a team of folks that represented and spoke over 40 languages, and that's the you know crux of your mission and being able to communicate and educate. So I think this idea of helping people uh, contribute in their own unique ways and ultimately, you know, inspiring them to make their own impact is, is really important. Now that, you know, vaccines are approved and rolled out or in the process of being rolled out, I was wondering if the COVID-19 literacy project had any plans to better cater to educating folks about the vaccine on itself instead of now focusing solely on the um, virus. So um, could you tell us about the communication logistics or anything that you have planned? Yeah, absolutely. So we do. That's our big reveal that we haven't actually posted anywhere yet. But uh, we are in the process of creating one to two fact sheets about uh, the vaccine. Uh, We have gotten 
an amazing amount of requests for information, um, multilingual information about the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, for the reasons that you just mentioned, uh, there's a lot of hesitancy about the vaccine, especially in certain minority communities. Um, and these communities are often the ones that would benefit the most from the vaccine, just given the increased risk that their social and health factors put them at. So we are in the process of working with a few different healthcare organizations to collate the information about the vaccine um, and put the fact sheet together. Uh, so right now we're in the process of actually creating the English fact sheet. And as we you know, get that solidified in the next few, we're hoping to get this rolled out in the next few weeks um, as, it, as the vaccine becomes increasingly available to the general public. Um, so as we move past the information stage, uh, we're then going to harness and tap into the same network of, um, of translators that we had built for the other remainder of the project. Um, and then we'll move forward to working with the same community partners we had built relationships with to get the information rolled out. I would love to hear from your perspective and having built this career around healthcare equity and education and language, where do you see the role of medical education in tangibly mitigating disparities and helping achieve this sense of health equity across all populations? Yeah, for sure. So I think medical education ha absolutely has a responsibility. Um, in fact, it has a mandate to teach students about the social conditions that shape their patient's life and the care that they receive in the hospital as well. And I firmly believe that it needs to go beyond the theoretical. So most of us are medical students on this call here and we, most of us have had a class here and there that teaches us how to think about health disparities um, and the importance of mitigating them. But while we learn about these issues in the theoretical and we read papers, um, both uh, like research papers and also theories about what are the root causes of health disparities, and it's incredibly important to establish that first knowledge base, right? But we never actually learn how to address these inequities. And what does it actually mean to care for patients with complex social needs? How do you actually build these sustainable partnerships between your clinic and your care team and your and the social services that your patients are going to be receiving care from? So I think we need to focus more on action. You know, one idea is perhaps for all medical students to spend time at community clinics during medical school, uh, learning how to care for patients and working on a project to reduce the social barriers that their patients face. Uh, but, but the point is, I think we need to, you know, start with the knowledge base that we're building, but we need to do more and we need to do more in a longitudinal manner and one that's actually putting students um, in the thick of it all and getting they're um, getting them onto the front lines of what it actually means to care for patients with social needs. Um, and Pooja, we're curious to hear about what you think um, and hope um, healthcare delivery might look like in the next 20 to 30 years. Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> um, sure. So I'll tell you, Instead of getting super into the specifics and the weeds of this, um, because I think, you know, that would change year to year with different advances and such, I'll, I'll tell you kind of the, the principles 
um, if you will, of how I hope healthcare de- delivery will uh, change and improve in the next few decades. And, and I think they're, they're very basic principles. Um, and I think that actually speaks to a larger theme here is that I, if from my perspective, I would hope that healthcare delivery, you know, really focuses on, on the core issues that, um, are central to patients. Um, I think it, you know, I would hope that it actually focuses on the ones that matter to patients and, and the forces that shape patients' lives and decisions. Um, often, you know, in our race for efficiency, it's you, it's easy to kind of get bogged down into the numbers and forget what healthcare is actually supposed to do, which is to understand a patient's own individual vision of health and to help them get there. Um, and we also often forget about how social forces, um, things like racism, homelessness, violence, all of how, which play a critical role in the life a patient leads, the decisions they make, and ultimately their health outcomes. And so I hope we can develop models of care that actually recognize these forces and which actually partner with a patient to help them lead the best, healthiest life they can in their own definition of what that means. And I also hope healthcare delivery can evolve to a place where it meets patients where they are. And by that, what I mean is that we kind of have this one size fits all healthcare system. And of course, there are certain organizations and certain systems that are um, moving away from this and pursuing a more individualized, tailored model. But overall, I think we have this one size fits all model of care. Um, and I think we need to move away from that to more tailored ones where we're actually thinking about a patient's specific needs, whether they be medical or social, and actually develop wraparound models um, that focus on those needs. Finally, I hope that healthcare delivery becomes more open to change. Um, And I'd look at the pace of innovation that COVID-19 has spurred in just the last 10 months or so. In months, we've seen new investments being made. We've seen new technologies being adapted. We've seen telemedicine, which has often been kind of this background player for for years, really come to the forefront and achieve stunning outcomes. Um, We've also, on the policy side, seen reforms that have taken decades to get through being um, being completed in a matter of months. So things like the medical re- licensing reform. So, you know, whereby in the past telemedicine wasn't be, wasn't able to be practiced across state lines as effectively. We, we saw reforms from CMS that allowed, um, medical licensing to change in the span of months. So, and I hope this kind of rapid pace of innovation and this adaptability to um, to crises and to new advancements really become a part of the fabric of healthcare delivery in the future. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that, um, Pooja. And I think last, last question that we have is, do you have a quote that you live by? Yeah, sure. Um, so I actually have a quote that is the background for my phone. Um, so I'll share that one because I look at it every day. <laughs> um, and the quote is that you can never cross the ocean 
unless you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Um, and I think that's, uh, it's a principle that I've lived life by a lot of the projects that I've been involved with and such, um, whereby, you know, when you're jumping into something entrepreneurial and you're jumping into uncharted territory, it often feels like you're losing sight of the shore and that you're kind of losing a grip on all the things that you're certain about. Uh, but often it's those kinds of decisions that have a real impact and really move the needle forward. So that's one that I live by. It's a great quote. I love it. Thank you so much, Pooja, for spending time with us this afternoon. I really appreciate it. And we're so excited to have you within our community and, you know, excited to see what is to come for your career and, you know, from medical school onward. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.